Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. of Nakubo in Brief, where we explore the issues shaping the business of higher education. I'm Brian Dixon, Director of Student Financial Services and Educational Programs here at Nakubo, and I'm really excited about today's conversation because I'm joined by one of my Nakubo colleagues, Lindsay Waite, who serves as our Director of Analytics. Lindsay, thanks for joining us for another podcast episode. Yeah, thanks, for having me, Brian. I love chatting with our government relations folks at Nakubo. Always fun things to talk about. All right. So we are we are going to uh, uh, be talking today about the latest uh, set of deliverables in Nakubo's State of Higher Education series. And we're going to talk about the project uh, uh, broadly in a bit. But I really want to, to jump right in because uh, this most recent brief uh, is titled Bold Action Required how to more effectively support students from low-income backgrounds. And that's, that's a pretty direct title. Uh, Lindsay, can you, can you talk about why action is required when we think of these students? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I think uh, I'll start off the answer by maybe putting it into a little bit of timely context. Um, so we know we're a little past a, a year into the, the COVID-19 uh, worldwide health crisis right now. Um, and, and, and first and foremost, you know, it is definitely a health crisis, but we also know um, that it's uh, caused lots of economic issues as well uh, across the globe, but, but also, you know, here in the U.S., um, and I know, so uh, April of 2020, we had several millions of individuals who were out of work, um, and that definitely had an, an economic impact uh, for lots of families um, across the nation, and I'd say also lots of individuals um, in, in higher ed, um, uh, you know, in particular students. Um, and so when we think about uh, the, the impact of of COVID-19, we definitely saw a divide. Um, and we saw that the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of economic inequalities uh, for individuals across the U.S. Um, we know uh, that data shows that individuals who had a post-secondary credential uh, were less likely to face a lot of those negative impacts, uh, negative economic impacts of the COVID-19 virus. Um, I'd also like to say, like, since we're focusing specifically on higher ed, uh, the pandemic also made accessing higher education more difficult, especially for individuals from low-income backgrounds. Um, we know many campuses, as they shifted to online education, that meant that students themselves had to have access to internet service and, and have a, a place away from campus to be able to focus on their studies. Uh, and the pandemic really made that challenging, uh, in particular for individuals um, from lower-income backgrounds. Um, and it wasn't just about accessing the, the courses, 
uh, uh, online and materials and things like that. There were also concerns about basic needs of, of college students, uh, being able to have access to food, housing, um, and a lot of those concerns, you know, obviously come before higher education. Um, so it definitely had an impact for individuals from low-income backgrounds uh, in a couple different ways. But I should say, you know, when you ask about why is bold action required? It's not all about the pandemic. Uh, we know that even before the pandemic, uh, individuals from lower income backgrounds definitely had obstacles to access higher education. Uh, for example, um, some of the data in the brief that you mentioned uh, that you and I actually had the opportunity to work on together, uh, some of the data that we cited uh, shows that before the pandemic, if you look at cohorts of 18 to 24-year-olds, so kind of that age group that we think of as, as maybe traditional higher education students, uh, college participation um, for individuals from, from the, the lowest income quartile did increase, has increased over time from about 28% in 1970 to about 51% in 2018. So we did see more individuals from low-income backgrounds accessing higher education. But when you really dive into the data, we also see that in that same year, uh, data from the Pell Institute shows that in 2018, individuals from the highest income quartile were four times as likely to have a bachelor's degree as their peers from the lowest income quartile. And I think that that's really important that, you know, the, the data that we're exploring in this brief, it does show that, yes, things have been improving in terms of higher ed access, but there's still a lot of work that we have to do. Um, we still see um, individuals from lower income backgrounds um, not having the same outcomes uh, as their peers from higher income backgrounds. Uh, and that's in terms of retention, graduation rates, um, and outcomes post-graduation in terms of like earning. Uh, so there really is quite a bit of work to do. Uh, and I would say, you know, a lot of this kind of comes from, you know, the trends uh, in access and success um, definitely paint a picture of work to do. But because this brief really focuses on um, barriers for individuals from low-income backgrounds, it's also important to note that who pays for college has shifted over time. And that's another important trend uh, that impacts um, individuals, uh, you know, students, families, policymakers. It, it impacts everybody. And it definitely points that we have quite a bit of work to do because students are now shouldering even more of the cost of higher education than they had in the past. Right, right. So I was actually hoping you could talk a little bit more. Um, you, you mentioned that shift in who pays. Maybe you could uh, explain to our listeners kind of what that uh, traditionally has looked like over the years and, and, and kind of where are we, what are we moving towards? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and it actually reminds me of another brief um, in this series. Uh, so we do have another brief. And I, I know we'll, we'll tell uh, folks how to find all the briefs in, in a little bit. Uh, but one of the other briefs uh, is about the value of higher education. And I know there's this debated question of, is higher ed a, a public good or is it a private good? So who benefits more um, from, from the education itself? Is it the student and their, their you know, increased uh, lifetime earnings over time? Are they the ones really receiving the benefit or is higher education a public good? Uh, and if you do look into to some of the data, uh, there's definitely lots of benefits to having um, more individuals in your communities have a post-secondary credential. Uh, and I know that wasn't really your question, so I won't get into that. It just definitely reminded me of that, that debate that those of us in higher ed hear over and over again is, you know, who, who does this benefit more? Um, 
So that said, I, I would say uh, if you do get a chance to look at that brief, uh, the answer isn't isn't one or the other. The answer really is both. Um, higher education is both a public and private good. Um, and when you look at the history of like who pays for individuals to receive a post-secondary education, um, who pays for a higher education definitely reflects the answer that it's both a public and private good because the money comes from both public and private sources. Over, over the course of time, there's always been some kind of mix of, yes, the students themselves pay uh, for part of the cost of a higher education through tuition and fees. Um, and so students do bear some of the cost of, of college. But we know that uh, colleges and universities also uh, receive money from government entities. Um, so through state appropriations, if you're a public college or university, um, or the federal government uh, also invests money into higher education, um, and that's through either financial aid or grant um, grant monies, et cetera. Uh, and then also the institutions themselves um, have leaders uh, in their, their business offices who look for other sources of revenue to continue to offset the, the cost of college. Um, and so things like, um, you know, endowments support the, the cost of college, um, uh, private partnerships, uh, monies that come from private donors or alumni to the institution. Um, so there's lots of sources of who's paid for college. But what I think we're really getting at with this question is that a, a disturbing trend that we've seen um, in higher education is the declining state support of public colleges. So in many states, appropriations never recovered from the Great Recession. Uh, so on average, states spend uh, a little over $1,000 less per student in 2019 than what they did in 2008. Um, so institutions are becoming less and less publicly supported. And so what does that mean? Uh, the institutions need to find resources from somewhere uh, to continue to provide uh, high quality education to the students. And so there are, you know, sources I talked about endowment dollars, I talked about uh, other private dollars or donations, but ultimately one of the easier levers to pull, pull for colleges and universities is to increase tuition, um, meaning that over time, uh, that has been an option that many institutions have taken. And we have seen that students now shoulder a larger share um, of the cost of, of uh, college education than what they have in the past. Uh, for example, um, in 2001-2, uh, that academic year, net tuition revenue accounted for depending on institution types uh, and all of those things, somewhere between a quarter and a third of institutional revenue for public colleges and universities. But by 2016-17, it made up uh, up to a third or half, uh, again, depending on institutional types. Um, you know, I'll also go ahead uh, and mention uh, the role of, of federal funding. Um, because uh, I think, you know, definitely talking to you, one of our policy experts at Nakubo, uh, I think, uh, there's been some concern in this space as well. Uh, so when we look at, at federal funding for higher ed, I know I mentioned, um, you know, that money uh, is allocated differently. So a lot of state dollars just go right to the institutions themselves. But federal dollars are usually um, uh, funneled through either the students, like through financial aid, or their, or it could be through grant projects. So the money is allocated a little bit differently. Uh, but, but one of the important levers I'd like to highlight from federal funding for higher ed is uh, uh, aid, uh, particularly grant aid, so money that students don't have to pay back after they graduate. 
And we've seen uh, some, uh, again, some unfortunate trends in this space as well. Uh, so if we look at the Pell Grant, for example, um, that's definitely one of the most notable programs in terms of providing access for individuals from, from low-income backgrounds to, to a higher education credential. Um, and when we look at, at how the Pell Grant has changed over time, uh, we can see that the overall or the relative value um, of the grant itself has declined. So in 1975-76, that academic year, uh, so think back to the early days of the Pell Grant, the grant covered about 67% of the costs that students would have to pay to attend college. But by 2018-19, the grant only covered about a quarter of the cost. And so its relative value has definitely declined. And that has big implications for, yes, colleges and universities, but also for students, and in particular, students from low-income backgrounds, those who have the most challenges to overcome as they try to uh, finance their college education. Uh, and I'll, I'll add, just because, you know, we are in a Kubo and we work with the business officers, uh, colleges and universities uh, do have a role in all of this. Um, so they, they're, um, you know, other sources of revenue, the ones that I mentioned, and, and they can start thinking differently or thinking about cost cutting or how can they themselves invest into uh, financial aid uh, through their tuition discounting practices or other practices that they have. And that can help with, you know, the, the operating costs and, you know, other other costs that the institutions have. But but still, we've seen some definitely uh, unfortunate trends in a lot of the data. Right, right. So there's definitely a lot of, of, a lot of factors at play here. And that kind of is a great way, you know, explaining why, why action is required. So then, um, I guess, you know, the next logical question then is, what is that bold action that is required um, for these students from these backgrounds? I, I do hope the listeners take a chance to look at this brief as well as the other ones we have. Um, uh, at Nakubo, those of us who have been working on this series kind of divided the, the action that's required into three buckets. And I'll talk about each of those buckets um, but they're in short, uh, trust the evidence, invest and make a commitment to underserved student groups. Uh, and so those are kind of the three big steps. Uh, I know we said bold action. Um, and those seem like, uh, you know, easy answers to think of. But I think as we explore them, it really is going to require quite a bit of effort from all stakeholders um, to help make strides uh, for students at our colleges and universities. All right. So the first one. Uh, was was uh, trust the evidence or or data, uh, and I know this you is, said this, was, this is your this is your your baby yes. here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I was going to say. It makes sense that I would be talking about the importance of using data. Um, so I'll say. Uh, my advice uh, to, to everyone, and this is whether you know you're on a campus or you're a policymaker um, or you work for a, you know an advocacy organization, but anybody involved in higher ed, uh, know the data, uh, be, become familiar with it, um, and trust the evidence. Um, and some of that isn't just relying on you know the exactly what the data say, but there's a lot of experts um, in higher education. So bring that knowledge, bring the evidence and understand the context of, of campuses and higher education in the U.S., but, but do dive into the numbers, look for the patterns. Um, and you're specifically, when we think about this brief, uh, I would say look for patterns and who has access to your colleges and universities and who doesn't. 
Uh, also look at who's being retained, who's graduating. Um, you know, what are the, the outcomes for your students after they graduate? Uh, and, and who isn't graduating? Who isn't being retained? Um, who, who isn't having uh, the same kinds of um, gains in their salaries post-graduation or, you know, or other outcomes um, that we would say uh, are, are part of what we value in higher education? Um, you know, for example, we, we look at the brief um, and institutions who really are turning to the data to help them support students um, from low-income backgrounds. Uh, we highlighted a couple institutions. One was Elgin Community College and another was University of Pittsburgh. Uh, both of these institutions uh, in very different case studies, um, uh, you know, Elgin looking at um, uh, some of the impacts of COVID-19 and University of Pittsburgh, the, the example we highlight there was some work they were doing even before the pandemic, but they were starting to dive in to understand you know, who, who are our low-income students um, and what are the, the policies or practices or, you know, what are the barriers that are somehow existing in our institution, uh, barriers either to them enrolling or to being able to access our courses. Uh, and what they really did is dive into the data. And both of these institutions moved on to the next step, uh, which is invest. So once you understand what the barriers are and once you understand, um, you know, some of the, the um, challenges that you're in, not so much that your institution is facing, but yes, that your institution is facing, but maybe the barriers that your institution has had and they are not even aware of for students from low-income backgrounds. Um, and once you've used data to identify them, then invest in, in fixing those, fixing the structures, fixing the policies, fixing the practices. Uh, in the brief, we highlight you know, a couple ways of thinking about how to invest. Um, so we focus on uh, financial aid. Uh, and we also focus on the, you know, the, the quality of student support programs. So any of your student success efforts at your institution. Uh, and we highlight, again, a few institutions who have been making good strides in this area, uh, both Vanderbilt and also University of North Texas, uh, but really looking for institutional practices where once institutions have understood their data, that they think about ways of reimagining their financial aid policies to make sure that they're getting the dollars into the hands of, of students who are, are most in need um, of that support. Uh, because we do know that there is uh, definitely a role for financial aid uh, and that without financial resources, uh, there are many students who wouldn't be able to access a college degree. So the third bucket uh, that I know I said I would also talk about is make a commitment to underserved students. Data show that students from low-income backgrounds oftentimes also belong to other demographic groups that have also been historically underserved by colleges and universities. For example, data from the National Center for Education Statistics shows that students from low-income backgrounds are more likely to be female. They're more likely to be uh, Black or Hispanic or Asian. Uh, and we know that that these groups of students also face barriers to accessing higher education. And once they're enrolled in higher education, face different systemic barriers that, that make it more difficult for them to remain enrolled and ultimately graduate uh, and, and have the same kinds of outcomes as their peers. Uh, so we know that institutional leaders need to understand these dynamics at their own colleges and universities so that they can make decisions about how to best invest in their mission and ultimately support their students. Also, Brian, we're on the, you know, on the, the topic of what is the bold action that should be required. You know, I talked mostly about what colleges and universities can do themselves, but we know that there are also policies 
um, at, you know, at different levels that could support students from low-income backgrounds as well. I'm wondering if you could talk about, um, you know, some of the policies that we would recommend. I, I really, I think, um, and, you know, you, you did focus on, on Pell Grants quite a bit, Lindsay, and, and um, you made some good points about how the, the, the purchasing power of Pell has decreased over the years. Um, and, and, you know, how those, the increases to Pell just haven't, haven't kept up with inflation. So, um, and, and then even you look at, you know, the maximum award currently is still below the average tuition um, at, at a four-year, you know, public uh, university. Double Pell is really policy area that's, that's getting a lot of focus right now. Um, but even before I jump into that, uh, I will say that we did see some we saw some uh, uh, changes uh, come out of the spending bill that was passed at the end of, of 2020. And, you know, while those, those changes won't take effect for a few years, um, we think they're a welcome sign. And, and that includes, uh, you know, reducing the number of questions on the FAFSA, the uh, free application for federal student aid. We, we just saw recently that EAB even put out um, some data about how, how students are, are, and especially low in, students from low-income backgrounds are finding uh, uh, the difficulties with completing um, the FAFSA and all of the the, the um, figures that they have to pull in and 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 work on to, to complete that form. And there were also some adjustments to the Pell eligibility formula um, that are that's actually going to allow uh, more students to be eligible for the grant. And the students that were already eligible, it's going to allow more of them to be able to um, take advantage to hit that maximum award. Um, but, you know, back to, to double Pell, we even heard, you know, when when Joe Biden was even running for president, he was calling for double Pell. You know, doubling obviously would would increase the value of that grant to those already eligible, like I mentioned. And it would also expand those benefits to, to some middle uh, class folks, too. And and the best part about that kind of solution, as you mentioned, Lindsay, is that because it is a grant, it doesn't have to be paid back by the students. So there's there's definitely a, a great benefit there. So that's kind of, if I had to pick one, I guess that would be, would be the one. I wanted to, you know, and we, we did talk, Lindsay, um, that this brief is part of a, a, a series of briefs on the state of higher education and, and this bigger project at Nakuba. I was wondering if you could share with folks, uh, again, a little, a little more about the project and kind of what we're, what we're looking to do here. Yes, this is part of a series. So this particular brief is the first one that we've released in 2021. And if you're, if you want to, I don't know if you're on social media or on Twitter, but please talk about the brief. Please talk about, um, you know, supporting uh, students from low income backgrounds in higher ed. We've been using the hashtag, hashtag higher ed 21. But I'll put that aside for a second. So this is the first one that's come out in 2021. In 2020, we had two other uh, briefs come out. Um, that are that are part of this same series, and you'll notice a, a lot of uh, common themes with the topics um, that that are coming up in this series. So last year, the the two topics were uh, the value of higher education through a COVID nineteen lens. So looking at the importance of uh, investing in higher education uh, because it does help uh, with. Uh, promote social mobility um, in the nation, um, and that it does. It is both a. It shows that higher ed is both a public and private good. Um, the other brief that was released um, in, in 2020 as part of this series uh, was called Confronting the Need to Address Racial Disparities in U.S. Higher Education. Um, and I would say that brief um, 
all of them are definitely interconnected, um, but highlights one of the points that I, you know, I was just making a few moments ago. Um, and that's that, you know, there are definitely barriers um, to accessing um, and attaining outcomes uh, at colleges and universities for individuals who do come from lower income backgrounds. There are also uh, distinct barriers uh, for individuals um, who are uh, people of color um, who are working to access higher education. Um, and I think if you look at those two, this brief and that one together, I think you would see um, a lot of uh, overlap. Um, but I'd hope folks would also see, you know, the, the distinctions between the two that while yes, there is overlap among the groups and that maybe makes it, um, even, even more important for institutions to be focusing on some of these efforts, that it's also important to know the distinctions. Um, and, and maybe it's because I'm a data person, but, you know, really think about how you're disaggregating your data as you, uh, read these briefs and think about how you're serving your students, because we do know students are different, you know, at every institution, um, you know, the, the demographic makeup of your students. So you do need to understand like these briefs through your own lens uh, as well. Uh, but so those are the, the two briefs that came out in 2020. Uh, we have more topics to come uh, in 2021. You know, I kind of hinted a little earlier, uh, one of the, the barriers, um, at least early on in the pandemic, for sure, uh, for accessing higher education for students was, was having access to the internet, uh, just to keep being able to get online because colleges switched to emergency online education uh, pretty quickly, um, you know, over a you know, two-week period early in 2020. Um, but which is good, you know, it shows that colleges definitely can can turn quickly and make moves to support students. Uh, but in that process, and now as we're looking back at some of the data and maybe who didn't have access to the Internet, um, it was a lot of students who were from low income backgrounds. Um, and so this this shift to online education is, is going to be one of the next topics that we'll explore in this brief series. Uh, so again, it definitely relates to the other topics that we've already addressed. Um, while I'm on the the, the topic uh, or answer your question about the, the brief series, I'm going to go ahead and I hope listeners um, either have a good memory or maybe can can jot this down. But if you want to access the briefs, I would say go to Nakubo's website. Um, and once you're at nakubo.org, click resources. And then under the advocacy list, you'll see state of higher education. It's the link at the top. Um, click there, you'll see all of these these briefs. Um, and so please read them. Uh, please engage in the conversations about the topics with us. And, you know, I was thinking, it's not just the briefs that you'll find when you get to that website. There's resources too. Brian, did you want to talk about some of the resources? Uh, I, yes, I, I, I did. Um, you know, the, the, the briefs are fantastic and they include uh, plenty of, of, of data points and, and stories, as you had mentioned. But uh, for those maybe a little more on the, the visual side of the house, we do have uh, with each of these um, topics, with each of these briefs, we have accompanying uh, customizable slide decks that uh, help illustrate the data and, and the points that we're talking about here. So, you know, folks can modify them in their organizations. You know, if you have your own templates, of course. And, and, and yes, they're, they're, they're good, you know, not only for um, presentations or images on websites or in brochures, um, basically, you know, your, uh, your communications with, uh, with stakeholders, but they're also tremendously helpful for those, um, those internal 
conversations at colleges and universities. So, so think, you know, your, your conversations with colleagues in your department or, or cabinet meetings or meetings with the board or meetings with, with the council of trustees. Um, so they're, they're very helpful and, and they're part of each, like I said, of each of these briefs. Um, that you have mentioned, uh, Lindsay. So, Lindsay, before we wrap up, any 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 closing thoughts on this? I know we had a lot to kind of unpack here, um, which is why we are encouraging folks to 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 take a look. But any 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 kind of closing thoughts from you? Oh yeah, Brian, you you know I have, I've always got more to say <laughs> <laughs> on any topic. I can always. It's, it's called it is Nakubo in brief, so uh, we are. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll keep I'll keep this answer short. Okay. Uh, but one thing just to echo. Uh, so I would just echo some of your comments about the importance of using the briefs and the resources, um, that they're really there, um, not just so you can say like, here's a resource from Nakubo, but it's really about, you know, how is Nakubo helping leaders in higher education? Uh, and I would say leaders are, or anybody, you know, anybody from students to faculty, to staff, to administrators, to the chief business officers, you know, our, our, um, primary member at Nakubo. Um, but I would hope that everybody's thinking about how they can use these data um, and this information and these resources to either think differently or think critically about their own role at their own institution and how they can make a difference to better support students. Um, but also, like, you know, as you said, we created all of these uh, slide decks and, and links and things that can go on social media or be put into presentations or or wherever folks might be talking to other uh, other other leaders or other stakeholders in higher education. Uh, so be thinking about who else needs to know this? Who are the influencers? Who can use this information to make a difference for students? Uh, and, and my final thing I'd like to say, I kind of just want to highlight one sentence from the brief that, that's my favorite sentence that I think kind of sums up the, the reason for the action or, or why we really are calling on our members to be active and engaging with these conversations. And that's Colleges and universities can serve as engines of social mobility, but to do so, higher education leaders and policymakers need to understand the backgrounds of students from low-income families and what barriers they face. And I think that really is the, the call to action from this series and this brief in particular. Well said, Lindsay. All right, so that is going to be a wrap uh, for this episode of uh, Nakubo in Brief. And as always, uh, if you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend, share it with a colleague, and uh, be sure to give us a rating if you do like us, uh, whether it's on Twitter, uh, on iTunes, or, or wherever you uh, get your podcast. So thanks again, uh, Lindsay White, and I hope we can uh, keep this conversation going. And, and I'm looking uh, forward to discussing future, de- future deliverables in the Kubo's uh, State of Higher Education Initiative. This was, this was a lot of fun, Lindsay. For Nakubo, this is Brian Dixon and Lindsay Waite, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>